Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Lady Wednesday, and I want to do one I, I promised for, uh, I would give a talk now for uh, Abe Skoletsky. It's in memory of his mom, the yard set is tonight. Uh, 5L, the yard set is tonight. And she's a survivor, apparently. Went through the war. Like my folks <clears throat> from cards, where, where Pinchas cards are from. In Poland. Or Ukraine, whatever you want to call it. So, this is being sponsored in memory. Zecher Nishmas. Achai Brocha Baskedalian's week. From the generation of the of the Shoah and all the people came afterwards. Whew. What a period. That led me to think along the following lines. You know, I wasn't planning this, but I look at the news today and I see Gorbachev drop dead. And that's epic, something to talk about. Because Gorbachev is Mamisha, I'm serious, is Mamisha case of Leif Sarm Biyad Hashem. It sounds like a frummy thing to say, but it, you know, if you study it, it's quite remarkable. Gorbachev, for those living on the moon, was the last guy in charge of the USSR, and under him, the whole thing exploded, imploded, I should say. Okay, uh, none of us who lived at that time ever imagined that you know it would, the whole place would go away without a war, but it happened, and it was brought about by his um, fumblings, which clearly were divinely inspired. Um, it's quite a story, and affects the Jews a lot. Okay, um, the Soviet Union, which no longer exists, um, started in 1917 at the point of a gun. Lenin and these guys took over by a coup d'etat, by killing their opponents, by pure naked power. And even though they said, oh, it's all idealism and Marxism and all the rest of it, and they want to protect the poor and the working classes, but that's bogus. What really happened was, a group took over and they weren't letting go. It could be that, you know, in the mind of Lenin, he thought that this was going to change the world. I could debate somebody on that back and forth, but it doesn't matter because he's exactly one of these types of people and his successors, in which I'm willing to kill 99% of the human race as long as the 1% that survives will have it good. That That's his, uh, you know, thought. And that's what Russia was based on. And from day one... <clears throat> They did like the czars, which is, <clears throat> as soon as they took over, they made it a crime to criticize anything. So immediately you had to say, everything is great. Everything is great. Whoever says it's not great, gets killed or terribly uh, punished. And so they ran on a terror. Now, Lenin himself died in office, you might say. He's actually was shot for a while. His shooting um, intensified his syphilis. And eventually, he fell apart. You can see photographs of him. You care to look at his ugly. That's why he died from venereal disease. Okay, I got no problem with that. And then Stalin took over. Stalin was totally cynical. And that's what it required to keep the regime going. And so you killed anybody, even if it havamina, 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 might be a problem. And the fact you killed a billion, zillion innocent people doesn't matter. And if anything, he intensified and used the, the modern technology to intensify the idea that everybody has said it's the greatest country that ever was, and Stalin's the greatest man that ever lived. Okay? As close as you can come to saying somebody's a god, that's what that's as far as they tried. According to they tried. Okay? There's a very famous movie um, called The Liberation of Berlin or The Battle of Berlin or something like that, which the Russians made after the war, I think in 49. And... At the end, you know, and it's all about, you know, the war against Hitler. They put so much money, they made a color movie, which he never did in Russia, you know, to glorify the victory. It's a long, dramatic movie. I'm sure it's online. 
And at the end, they have a bogus scene where having won and conquered Berlin and Hitler destroyed himself, Stalin flies in on this giant eagle, I mean on a giant airplane, but it looks like an eagle, and steps out. And from the point of view of a Vodazar, it's just fascinating. You know, I'm always interested in historical movies, especially foreign movies, because they show you what that, it's, it's a very good uh, insight in where that culture is holding. That's my opinion. And you see, to the degree it's possible for cinematography to turn someone into an allele, into a god, they do it. I know you think I'm just exaggerating all the rest, but that's because you never saw the movie. If you see this movie, which is the last 10 minutes, for a Jew, a from Jew, it's really unnerving. Because you see, everybody's look, calling upon him literally the way literally the way you would see the coming of the Messiah. Mamish that way, on, on wings of eagles. Now, the whole scene never happened. Stalin never went to Germany after the war in, 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 in the Battle of Berlin and so on and so forth. And so, W, you do it. And the guy who made the movie, yeah, Chirelli, some name like that, he was a Russian, a, a Georgian probably, was, you know, making it his pants that Stalin shouldn't dislike anything. But he laid it on so thick that Stalin again said, oh, he did a good job. <laughs> I remember his daughter wrote a memoir. Then he could breathe. So this was the system. There was tremendous suffering. Um, you couldn't criticize anything. And the Adra, but you had to see how great it is. Okay? Did Stalin not know? Do Cornish knew different? After all, he could see foreign movies. <laughs> you know? Every night in the Kremlin, they showed foreign films. He knew what's going overseas, but it doesn't matter. It is interesting. And he was 100% cynical. It's It's not easy... For people like you and I to think about somebody who's a total dictator and does not believe in God or anything at all. So then how how do you view reality? You get what I'm saying? All bets are off. This was the USSR. Unfortunately, the Jews got in the crosshairs. Under Lenin, it was the religious Jews. And under Stalin, slowly but surely, not overnight, it was all the Jews. So by the time Stalin was finished... This before he died, um, in the early 50s, it was clear some gigantic pogrom is about to take place of some sort, some form or another. Some form or another. There are a lot of theories and books and this and that and the other, and nobody knows exactly. I repeat, nobody knows exactly. You don't believe all the stories you read. But when all said and done, something bad was about to happen, and then he dropped dead. Okay? Then he dropped dead. They say it happened in porn. If it happened exactly in porn, maybe he got the stroke of it, doesn't matter. You know the old line, the Hitler goes to a gypsy and says, you will die on a major Jewish holiday. Which one? Any day you die will be a major Jewish holiday. You know, so that's what happened with Stalin. And so he lived and died very cynical. You get it? Very cynical. The guy came at, so my point's like this. There was no way for somebody to retire from power. You held on until you died. So the last minute, literally, he was in complete and total control. It's amazing. There was no mechanism for somebody retiring. Then, after all, why not? You know, you, he could retire or live like a millionaire. That's not what he wanted to do. The guy who took over after him after a little bit was Khrushchev. So there's three guys, Lenin, Stalin, Khrushchev. And he also planned to hold on till he dies. The only thing is, he alienated other Big shots. I won't go through the whole story. And so he's deposed from office. They didn't kill him. They said what I just told you. Listen, you're in your 70s. Just sit down and live like a millionaire. You know, whatever. Uh, it, it drove him crazy, but he had no choice and he did it. Okay? He actually wrote these very interesting memoirs, which are very bitter and cute. And like the others, let me say this. I'm interested in the Jewish angle. Under Khrushchev, the um, anti-Semitism intensified in some ways, even though it's also true that it decreased in some ways. Stalin was mamish holding ready to have a mass killing. Khrushchev didn't do a mass killing, but instead he made very per pervasive the anti-Semitism, especially in the government and all such situations. And this was the policy that was continued by Brezhnev, 
who indeed did not alienate any of the powerful people, and who indeed hang on until he died, even though he's Eber Butel, in the last couple of years. If you think I'm exaggerating, just go Google <coughs> a picture of, of Lenin, I mean, what's his name, Brezhnev, in the last couple of years, and you'll see that the guy's over the hill. Can't even finish a sentence. But they were so scared, you know, that he held on. That means that there was no way to, um, how should I put it, have a, a, a peaceful succession of power. They didn't even know what it means. You held on until you held on. And everybody's very cynical. Khrushchev claimed to be a true believer, but that's bogus. Maybe somewhere he held it, uh, for, he hoped for a better world. Meanwhile, he worked hard in any party at heart. I'm not saying Khrushchev had those kind of parties, but he had his drinking parties. Brezhnev had those kind of parties also. So in other words, a few people at the top lived a life of Riley, and everybody in the, in the bottom didn't. As far as Jews are concerned, the best I understand, and I had relatives over there, he had to maneuver as Jews always do within the system. So, you know, if you're Jewish, you had to find something like in academia, wherever, that they need you. And then, even though no Jews are allowed in this department, for you, they'll make exception. This is famous in math and physics and those kind of things where they needed the big brains. You know, the guy who discovered the A-bomb for Russia, an H-bomb, whatever, was Landau, a descendant of Noda Behuda. I'm serious. I love Landau. And there are many others. Some had Jewish names, some didn't. And as long as they, you know, don't mention the fact they're Jewish, everybody knows they are, you could, you know, survive in that system. And you could survive, I would even say, if you were very good, you know, comfortably. But everything was very cynical. It's interesting. I don't, I don't know if there ever was a regime that was so cynical. Because everybody knew there's no equality or anything like that. It's all about the people hanging on to power. And the Jews in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now listen closely to what I'm about to tell you. Be'etzim, it was, the Jews were persecuted. And they were not allowed to go to Israel. And, starting with Khrushchev especially, Russia jumped in with both feet on the side of the Arabs against Israel in the Arab-Israeli dispute. Ad <clears throat> Kedekah, that when Israel won the war in 67, Russia and all the communist countries broke diplomatic relations. They removed their embassies. We don't want an Israeli embassy in our country, and we're not going to have our embassy in your country. We don't recognize you as a real state. It's interesting. This was to show the Arabs how anti-Israel we are, how pro-Arab we are, La Afuki America that still is friends with Israel and has an embassy in Israel. Therefore, in the Cold War between us and America, the Arabs support us. They support us against America. And it worked. For those regimes that were of that type, uh, Syria, Egypt for a while, Libya, Algeria, Iraq, you see what I'm saying? All those countries... They're like pro-Russian in the Cold War. And as a result, the Russians gave them a ton of weapons and junk like this, which was always a mortal threat to the state of Israel. And that's where Israel was always sweating bullets, trying to get equal uh, weapons or something like that. I repeat, something like that from America to balance it out. And even if it balances out, you don't know what a war will lead to. This is the, the, the time of my youth. Maybe some of you listening. So Russia was 100% in line with the Arabs. It was totally cynical because these all were, were against the oppressed Arabs. Meanwhile, the Russians are oppressing all their people. The Arab regimes that they're hooked up with were oppressing all their people. But nobody gives a darn. It's a lie. In the United Nations, the Arabs voted for Russia. That's, that was a major part of the Cold War. That's why a lot of American Galicia diplomats used to say the U.S. is too much pro-Israel. It's a bad idea. It's hurting us in the Cold War. And so on and so forth. Now, that means that in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, there were no diplomatic relations between Israel and the Soviets and their, their allies, like Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and all that. Romania was the exception. And that was a fulfillment of the Russian anti-Semitism. It was very satisfying to them mentally 
that they're not Doris Israel. Even though, from a narrow perspective, they were hurting themselves. Why do I say they're hurting themselves? The mice, at the end of the day, Israel had conquered a lot of territory in 67, and the question was how to get them to give it back. Uh, the Sinai Peninsula, the Golan Heights, the Shtachim, as they call it. The Arabs tried a couple times to wipe out Israel, it didn't work. So if it doesn't work on battlefield, you have to come with some political way. A political way to get Israel to do what you want, which is to give up the land that they conquered. How are you going to do that? It's going to require negotiations. The Russians totally backed the Arabs. So what does that mean? Israel is not going to listen to the Russians. Israel said, to hell with you. You're not going to me, I'm not going to you. The Russians always said, I remember this, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, we're a superpower, therefore even though we're not going to you, you should reconcile with what we hold, and you should negotiate with our diplomats within the framework of, of, of retreating from the territory that you captured in the, in the 60s. And Israel over and over again said, stop the boycott of us, let my people go, let the Jews go from uh, Soviet Russia to Israel, and then we'll negotiate with Russia like we do with America. This was nothing but plain common sense. You can't expect me to have dealings with you if you're not good with me. The Russians did it anyway. So what does that mean? Lemaisa, they cut themselves out of any kind of serious political engagement in the from 1967 to 1990, let's put it that way. All the stuff that happened and politically significant as far as the state of Israel is concerned, was uh, by America. Any of you remember Henry Kissinger, Jimmy Carter with the, what do you call it, with the uh, Camp David Accords, Ronald Reagan. Israel always dealt with the Americans. And the MISA, the Americans did deliver, not overnight. The fact of the matter is that Kissinger got the Israelis to withdraw from the Suez Canal area, give it back to Egypt. And Jimmy Carter got him to get, to get back the whole Sinai Desert, which was huge. Huge. I, the Americans said, that, that what do you call it? That um, Israel, I mean, Egypt has to make peace with Israel. I'm sure the Israelis, I mean, the Egyptians are like this. Meanwhile, we'll make peace, which is just a promise. We'll get the land back, which is not a promise. That's all I said. And later on, we'll change our minds. The Rabbani Shalom has so ordered things <clears throat> that ever since that happened, 1979, which would be 40-some years ago, international affairs have so transpired. <clears throat> Moreover, Egyptian internal affairs have tra so transpired that so far they've not had the chance to do what they would like to do, which is to attack Israel again. I know the Egyptians, believe me, I know I'm talking about the, the, the nature of the regime in Egypt, the uh, the the unbelievably bad economy, the demographic problem, problem now of the Nile River, and a hundred other problems, are ma'akev the Egyptian leaders from doing what they would like to do. Okay, let that be. But all the credit and all the influence went to America, which was the mortal enemy of Russia. So here you are under Brezhnev, and Kissinger is doing all the shtick and getting all the credit. And then Jimmy Carter's, and Nixon, and Jimmy Carter's getting all the credit, deservedly so. And then later on, Reagan is getting all the credit. If they want Israel to do something, you got to get Reagan to talk to the Israelis to get them to do what they want to do. And Bush, a senior. In other words, the door, you have to, 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 the button you have to press is the Washington one, not the Moscow one. So what I'm saying is that the super anti-policy, Adkadekach, that I'm not even going you, backfired on the Russians and excluded them from a significant role in the Middle Eastern politics, which was a major world area. This is very interesting. Now, the Russians are not stupid. They're very smart diplomats. They always have. So, I'm sure the diplomats say like this, maybe we should recognize Israel. You know, 
for, tell the Arabs we're doing this for the purpose of playing a role in the peace negotiations, and we'll be on your side. Don't you want us, you know, to to be there negotiating, pressuring Israel? We can't do it if you know if we if we don't recognize them. They won't talk to us. Not really, not significantly. They couldn't bring themselves to do it. Their hatred for the Jews in Israel was so strong that they developed a lobby of Arabists and others, and under Brezhnev, they couldn't they couldn't change. So it's, it's just interesting to me. The prejudice and the racism and the riches blocked them from doing what their mind told them was necessary to do. They listened to the heart rather than the mind. In addition to what I just said, you had the Soviet Jewry issue. They wouldn't let the Jews go to Israel. Why the heck not? Bishlamov, you tell me, you have a dozen or two dozen top nuclear scientists who are Jewish. I hear. They know too much. But the average family in Minsk, in Vilnius, in Moscow, in Leningrad, in Kiev, you know, garnished. What does it bother you? They hate the Jews so much, they won't let them go. Israel even told them, look, we're not going to take advantage of this and say, look what a lousy country Russia is, everybody wants to leave. We'll, we'll play game, we'll play the game with you. We'll, agree, we'll, we'll, we'll play ball with you. We'll say people just want to move to Israel for family reunification. That was the thing. So the difference is nothing against Russia. You see? But they couldn't do it. And may I say, because Russia wasn't garbage then, there was no real reason for Israel not to push this. Listen to this closely. From 1948 to 1967, when they had diplomatic relations, goof for the fact that they had diplomatic relations prevented Israel from getting a full court press for Soviet Jewry. I know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm saying? Full court press. And many Jewish organizations were actually, um, what's the right word, frustrated by the Israeli position. I hear it, you know, it's it's complicated. And put in simple terms, Ben-Gurion and Golda Meir, you know, they say like this, Israel's in a very weak uh, situation. We don't want to get Russia ticked off. Maybe one day Israel will be strong. We can demand that Jews should be left. But now, it's, it's, it's not strong. Well, once you're not Gorismi, you take away the embassies, all the rest of it, there's nothing to be of the full pressure on the because the Russians have no, uh, uh, you know, uh, threat on them. What are you going to do? We'll go against Israel. You are going against Israel anyway. So it's just very interesting that hatred for the Jews blocked them from doing things that would have been productive for themselves. Produ productive for themselves. This is uh, the problem with racism in general. Uh, a racist attitude very often prevents you from doing smart things. This is not a matter of being liberal or conservative. It's a Matthias. You understand? And we all know the power of racism of one kind or another. I would say everybody everywhere somehow is a racist somehow. You know? The whites are racist. The blacks are racist. The greens are racist. The yellows are racist. That's, it's how it goes. If you're if you're honest. You know, you cut away all the baloney. Everyone's racist in their own way. And that can prevent you if it becomes really a dominant form in your thinking, from doing things that you need to do that will help you. Russia is an is a perfect example of what I just said. They were superpower. They had all the missiles. They actually had a stronger army than anybody else. As far as I'm aware, the, the, the army under Brezhnev was unbelievably powerful and competent, I think. And all I can say is they're pretty doggone strong. And yet hurt themselves. They couldn't make rational decisions which would be in their better interest. Their better interest because they had a racist attitude towards the Jews, which is an old thing in Russian culture going back for a thousand years. Uh, I've said before, I don't expect people to remember, in the old Russia, before Catherine the Great, uh, no Jew was allowed in the country. 
They had the right to do that. And that was their attitude. It's not the Roman Catholic Church, which has a, its own funny relationship towards Judaism historically. It's the Russian Orthodox Church, which had a much less complicated relationship, just hated the Jews. I mean, let me put it this way. Looked at them as evil, okay, on religious basis. And so even Peter the Great and others who tried to reform Russia didn't even make an attempt to allow Jews to live in Russia. The joke of history is that as the Russian Empire extended westward for their own reasons, they eventually took over what you and I call Poland-Lithuania, that giant area of Eastern Europe, which means that they took over and included in that territory millions of Jews who went on to have a baby boom shen kamoho. I'm serious. I'm talking about from the 1770s on. A baby boom shen kamoho. And therefore Russia not only now had Jews because they acquired them when they took over Poland. I'm talking about Poland, that is to say the old kingdom of Poland, which is Poland, Lithuania, Belarus, Ukraine, Latvia, and all that. And they had the largest uh, Jewish community anywhere. Uh, the most significant Jewish community. The most Jewish Jewish community quantitatively and qualitatively. And they didn't know what to do with them. They hated the fact that they were there. They didn't know what to do with them. And so they they could have adopted, uh, shall I say, a positive or benevolent attitude. Believe you me, if we're playing counterintuitive counter-history, if Russia had been, so to speak, positive and kind to the Jews, the Jews, I know what I'm talking about, the Jews would have took the Russian economy to the sky. I won't go into the details. They would have tremendously increased the Russian economy, which would have made Russia a prosperous place. And you wouldn't have all the trouble the Russians went through under the Tsar and afterwards. But they didn't do that. Their hatred was so much that it predominated their thinking, hatred of the Jews. And as a result, you know, Russia was and is retarded, held back from what it could be, right? They might not like to hear it, but that's the way it goes. This was endemic in Russia. All of us, when I was growing up, knew this, and you saw this all the, all the time. If Russia did anything, they doubled down on this. They printed and reprinted the, the Protocols of Zion, all kind of other things like that. Ad kedekach, that they believed in it themselves. You get it? They kept saying the Jews are a conspiracy to take over the world and they control everything. And they mom ended up believing it. Which is so funny to me. You made up the lie and you now believe it yourself. There's an old joke that goes like that. But I can't remember how it goes. <laughs> you know, where a guy tells the rumor that he believes himself. Now, um, I saw it in the diary of Theodor Herzl. Uh, anyhow, whatever the case is, it's very interesting psychologically. And so Russia made a lot of bad moves because of this. They hurt themselves because of this. Me'idach, the Russians were able, the Soviet regime was able to claim that they're justified in their existence because, number one, they beat Hitler in the big war, even though there's what to talk about. But nevertheless, at the end, they wiped out Hitler. To know is they beat back this threat. And number two, they expanded their empire and the Soviet Union, the communist Russia, took Russia to the height of power. Never in its history was Russia as powerful as it was, I would say, under Stalin. I mean, you know, their domination of world events. I mean, they really took them to the top. Okay? We used to talk about the, the bipolar world, America and Russia. No, Russia was never like that in history. The, the the communists took it there. But at the same time, they had these deep and weak weaknesses. And their attitude towards the Jews was not a small part of it. Okay? And none of these guys could change Brezhnev or any of the others. Now, what's interesting is, when Brezhnev died eventually, after a little bit, Gorbachev took over, he came up believing in all the communist stuff. See, he wasn't as cynical as the others. He was cynical to a degree. But Imamish seems to believe all the propaganda. And that goofa made him, how should I put it, vulnerable 
to bad moves which he made, which undid the, the Soviet regime. The cynics before Lenin, Stalin, Khrushchev, Brezhnev, they're totally cynical. They knew you can't give even 1% democracy. Everything has to be constant, ceaseless, you know, dictatorship. Because that's the way it goes. And the KGB is the most important Zakh. And cranking down, cracking down on the slightest dissent is super important. And they knew it. They were under no illusions that the minute you give the slightest bit of freedom, the whole thing will fall apart. You think Stalin didn't know that? You think Lenin and Khrushchev and these other guys didn't? Of course they knew it. Which is why they never did. Gorbachev, for some reason, seems not to have copped that. Now, listen to this. The system that I described was one in which the guys at the top, since they held total power, did not do what smart rulers need to do. But only rulers with legitimacy generally do this. And the people I'm talking about had no legitimacy. They just clawed their way to power and held it by a gun. You have to surround yourself with people who criticize you, at least privately, offer you different advice, what we call constructive criticism. It's one of the reasons people get married. <laughs> right? If you surround yourself only with yes-men who tell you everything you're doing is great and you smell like roses all the time, you're going to crash. Life is not like that. Politics is not like that. Countries make mistakes. Okay, it happens. So what? You move on. In life, sometimes you make mistakes. Sometimes little mistakes, sometimes big mistakes. But everybody knows, when you make a mistake, the thing to do is not to sit there and cry. It's to try to fix it. Right? This is almost like a speech for L, you know? <laughs> you, you fix it. You can't go there. and if, if you deny it, you double down, you're just increasing the mistake. Right? Somebody says, you know, this boat has a leak. Shut up. I don't want to hear that. No, but the boat mamash has a leak. I don't want to hear it. You're, you're criticizing my boat. Okay, you dumbbell. The boat's going to sink. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? All the great political philosophers, the thoughtful ones, have discussed the necessity for having critical thinking, at least within the privacy of the elites. I remember Machiavelli has a whole chapter like this. You know, the prince, the ruler, has to have a few people who, behind closed doors, can tell him what's, what's going wrong. If you don't do that, it's not a good idea. Even Achashverosh seems to have that. It's not 100% clear, but it seems he hopped that. Um, not Russia. Now, Lenin, to a certain degree, yes, but he was so pig-headed, it didn't matter. But Stalin, you, who's going to criticize him? Even Letoelis. It's fascinating to read um, the World War II memoirs of the Russian generals like Marshal Zhukov and the others. You see, Stalin had a terrible idea, led to a million people getting killed. They could never criticize him. They simply had to wait for it to happen and then hope that Stalin on his own would then say, okay, maybe next time we'll try something else. They were so scared. The system was so against any kind of Internal criticism. You see what I'm saying? Now, this may be common to all dictatorships. Not really, but many. And that's how it goes. So, no one raised the question, is it a good idea to be so anti-Semitic? Misad Russia. Is it a good idea to be so much, 150%, in bed with the Arabs against Israel? Maybe it's not so good for Russia. You couldn't say that to Khrushchev. You couldn't say that to Brezhnev. You couldn't say it to the other guys. I'm sure here and there, a couple of smart diplomats, Tzvish and Zich, said it to each other. But you can never come up with it publicly. You see? This is how powerful the, the system was in this direction. Under Gorbachev, for the first time, they started to question this. You get it? He started asking questions. Now, I'm not going through the whole Gorbachev thing. I'm concentrating on the Jewish part. That's why I'm interested in the podcast. And basically, is it a good idea that we don't have relations with Israel? It only helps America. Is it a good idea we won't let any Jews out? 
Now, in the beginning, Gorbachev was like the others. And if, any, if anything, if you look, he took over in 85, 86, and they totally clamped down. They let nobody out. You know, he was trying to be Russian. The boat is not leaking. <laughs> Nobody's leaving this country. Nobody wants to leave the country. But events got a hold of him. And as they said before, Lev Sarn mega events in the world and in Russia and among the captured peoples, meaning all the nationalities of the Soviet Union, like the Ukrainians, who you know today hate the Russians, and the Belarus, and the Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, and the Kajikstan, Pajikstan, Shmajikstan, all these guys, Georgia, whatever. Uh, they had plenty of trouble with them. And in the course of all this, Gorbachev and his advisors, who he allowed to criticize him, hear what I'm saying? That's the difference between him and the others. He allowed, because they were friends with some of these guys, Yaakov Levin and the others, and, you know, even if he didn't totally go along, they were now first time raised the question, you know, maybe anti-Semitism is simply not a good idea as far as Russia is concerned. That was as far as our empire is concerned. Maybe totally being in bed with the Arabs and having no relations with Israel is counterproductive for the position of the Soviet Union. Because he allowed this thoughts and speech to come out there, it took on a life of its own. And out of his own control, next thing you know, he's lending out a million Jews. By the time you get this in 1989, 90, because they're all the Russia, they pretty much opened the doors. Not 100%, but very much. And Israel started to get flooded with Jews. And between 1989-1999, I think 800, I believe 800,000 Russian Jews came to Israel, which is humongous. It's the biggest Aliyah ever. I'm not saying Israel did a perfect job in absorbing them. Israel always does a lousy job when it comes to Klitat. If you're American and you can come in your own time, your own place, you know, after you bought your house, that's one thing. You have to run away. It's a different thing. But having said all that, acknowledging all that, you see Leif Sarm When Gorbachev started out, I remember, even in his own, you know, Kremlin discussion, he said, oh, the Zionists are controlling everything. And he bought into the party line. And they're the ones making the propaganda against Russia. And it's a Zionist plot. You see, Zionism like, really dominates thinking, which means the Jews. But he was forced, right, by world events to see that his policy was counterproductive. And by the time he left, he was actually acknowledging. He made a speech after he left office. It was, he said, listen, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Russia has had a lot of, of anti-Semitism. wasn't good for us. Uh, it was counterproductive, as they said before. Unfortunately, got pervasive. You know, we never admitted it. Mind you, he wasn't saying it was Be'etzim wrong to torture the Jews. Rather, he was saying it hasn't worked well for us. You see what I'm saying? It's very much a, a nationalist kind of narrative. It's not good for our, uh, you know, uh, it's not good of our interests. If you're Jewish, you'll take it. You know what I mean? You know, you know, if you're Jewish, you'll say, listen, as long as we're treated better, I don't care what your reason is. You're never going to get in Russia, with rare exceptions. How should I put it? You're never going to get in Russia, you know, uh, real idealism and respect for Jews as human beings and human rights. I mean, Andrei Sakharov, you have a few, but very few. Instead, we have to make the case for self-interest. And that was the case that Gorbachev eventually came to see. Now, why am I going through all this? This thinking, which I repeat, is not pro-Jewish, but it's a more enlightened way of being pro-Russia, has been the policy ever since. Ad 
I'm speaking of this in L of 2022. Maybe it'll change. I don't know. But, but so far, this has been the policy. The Russian government, because Russia fell apart, the Soviet Union fell apart, um, has not gone against the Jews. And they've walked a very interesting line in the Arab-Israeli conflict. And there certainly are close relations between U.S. and I mean, between uh, Russia and, and Israel. Sometimes warmer, sometimes not. I always watched very closely when Bibi was the prime minister, and he went a lot of times to Moscow, and they gave him covered gut all over there, and he participated in the Russian narrative, because one of the things they have in Eastern Europe are competing narratives. The Jews are a major part and a pawn in the competing narratives, which everyone is using for their own reason, not because they like the Jews. Um, I'll give you one example. You know and I know. When they invaded Ukraine, they said the Ukrainians are anti-Semitic. Uh, <laughs> what am I supposed to say to that? And the Ukrainians did terrible things in World War II to the Jews, and the Red Army liberated them. There's a certain truth to that. Now, the Red Army did not liberate the Jews because Stalin said, let's save the Jews, but as a byproduct. Okay, I get that. But Lemaise, if I was a Jew living in Lithuania and, and Belarus and Ukraine and so forth, the arrival of the Red Army means the end of Hitler. You cannot deny it. And the Lithuanians, the Latvians, the Estonians, the Belarusians, the Ukrainians all helped Hitler. You know and I know that they killed the Jews even before the German army showed up. I have a whole series on that if you're interested. You'll go online. Um, in July, June, July 41. And some places later. Uh, this plays into the Russian narrative. We're the good guys, and you're the bad guys. And so we took over your country, Stalin did after World War II. But that's because the good guys deserve to take over your country. You're the bad guys. Now, if you're a Lithuanian, Latvian, Estonian, Belarusian, Ukrainian, etc., say, no, we're the good guys. And the Russian invasion and, and domination of our country for 45 years after World War II was a bad thing. But, but the Russians, like Putin type, no, it was a good thing. And because you were evil, you murdered the Jews. Now, this drives the Lithuanians, for example, crazy because they did murder the Jews. On the other hand, I know how they think. They think, listen, it was a bummer. We made a mistake. Eh, five minutes of bad judgment. Okay, we killed all the Jews, men, women, and children, shot them in every town. It's a one-time deal. But other than that, everything was great. Yeah, how does the expression go? Mrs. Lincoln, how'd you like to play besides the assassination? And so, uh, what's his name? Putin has used this very cleverly. Very cleverly. And... You know, he went too far and invaded Ukraine because he's killing everybody, so these kind of arguments don't work anymore. Plus, the West doesn't like Putin because he seems to be, you know, trying to revive the Soviet Union through military force. And they really hate him because he's anti-gay. So he doesn't subscribe to the Western values. So it's a very complicated picture. It's a very complicated picture. But what Putin... Could, so far has subscribed to is what Gorbachev did. Legabi the Jews. And Gorbachev said, let's reevaluate how Russia has been treating the Jews. It has not been good for Russia. Right? And to tell you the truth, because Putin, until recently, was very good to the Jews, and you know, Lubavitch will tell you better than me. He was buddy-buddy with the Lubavitchers and everything. I'm, I'm serious. He got away with a lot of stuff that had he been anti-Semitic, he would never be able to get away with. Only now that Imamish invaded another country and they're behaving so brutally that he lost his fig leaf. But just take it from me. If he had thrown anti-Semitism into the rest of it when he was bombing Chechnya and suppressing, you know, human rights activists, and arresting liberals, and this and that and the other, and he would have been anti-Semitic, 
the whole world would have been down on this case. But because he made it a point not to be anti-Semitic and actually to be friendly to Israel and visit them all the time and go to Yad Vashem and buy his teacher an apartment in Tel Aviv and all the other kind of business, he talked got a pass. It's very interesting. He got a pass. So, Putin uh, hates Gorbachev because he said, you gave away the Soviet Union. Who allowed a big area like Ukraine and Belarus and these others to go and break away? You did. So I blame you. They really should be part of the Russian Empire. On the other hand, without saying it, Putin says, you were right on the Jewish thing. It was a mistake, the part of the Soviet Union, to pursue a policy of hatred towards the Jews because we they were not a threat to us and we just hurt ourselves. It was a mistake, not a sin, that we did all these bad things to the Jews and the Jewish religion. To tell you the truth, the mere yeshiva could have stayed in Russia and not bothered anybody, so to speak. <laughs> you know what I mean? You could have had operating synagogues of Orthodox Jews in Soviet Union. They wouldn't have been political, wouldn't have bothered anybody. We made a mistake. So for our own Tawellis, we're going to try to learn not to follow this path of folly because you allowed your racism to dominate your rational thinking. We're going to be guided by rational thinking. The God be the Jews. What's interesting is that irrational thinking is just something deep inside a person. And you see, it's just fascinating to me that the racial hatred in Russia, at least temporarily, has been removed from the Jews, but it's got to go somewhere, and it's been displaced upon the Ukrainians. It's a little weird. That's what it is. Based on what I read, you see there's this whole thing. They, they killed the guy's daughter the other day, Dugin, and these others. They're speaking about the Ukrainians the way they used to talk about the Jews. And so it's funny. The, the, the hatred and the racism is part of the DNA. The question is, who's it being lavished upon? The Jewish people are a small, helpless, fragile business. We were 16 and some million before Hitler. We haven't even come back to that. We're like 15 million now. Jewish people is a small, helpless business. Ania, Sora, Lo, Duchama. Right? That's who Claudius Israel is. And so, basically, from a narrow Jewish point of view, we don't have the luxury of telling Russia, don't be racist. The only thing we can say is like this, don't take it out of me. You know, I can't tell you what to do, but just not me. And that's happened. Now, I don't know what's going to be the future. This war and the reaction to the war in Ukraine is bringing all kind of, you know, unforeseen circumstances. We're scared all the time that they shouldn't revert back to the old anti-Semitism. The only good news is that most of the Jews are gone. I forget who. There's a guy who wrote a book um, about the Soviet Jewry issue. And if I remember correctly, the title goes like this. When they come for us, we won't be there. <laughs> you understand? That's why they went to Israel. Because when they change their mind, they come for us. We won't be there. We'll be in Israel. I can guarantee you this is what all the Jews from Iraq and Israel say. When the last 20, 30 years, all the junk that went on with Saddam Hussein and afterwards, the Jews in Iraq, who when they came to Israel, were mistreated. Nevertheless, they like, it's a good thing we didn't stay back in Iraq. And the Jews in Persia, I don't know. And the Jews in the Soviet Union, for sure. And so, if a new Brezhnev, I mean, a new communist anti-Semitism pops on in Russia... Which could happen in a second. It hasn't. I want to be clear about it. It hasn't. But it could happen in a second. Uh, the Jews won't be there for them, for them to hurt. However, I'm not really right. Because the Gabi the Arab is really thing. You know enough if you follow the news that Russia really puts a lot of resources into the bad guys. They ran the Hezbollah, the Syrians and the others. It's all conveyed for Israel. See, they don't need to wait and persecute the Jews inside of Russia. They can get them in Israel. So, you know, it's still a very, very scary world out there. Um, and Gorbachev, as far as I'm concerned, who died today, leaves a very 
ambiguous legacy, which again, I just concentrated on the Jewish side, which is fascinating to me. But, you know, it's the old legacy which says, do I think with my head or with my heart? Uh, who was it? George Washington in the farewell address said, if you get too emotionally big, bad, bad um, judgments. Uh, that's not the words he used. Uh, one minute, let me see here. Yeah, here it is. I look up George Washington's farewell address. The nation, he says, which indulges towards another nation, an habitual hatred or an habitual fondness is to some degree a slave. You see? It is a slave to its animosity or to its affection, either of which is sufficient to lead it astray from its duty and its interest. Like I told you the other day, Palmerston said in England, England has no friends or enemies, England has interests. The, um, you don't know which way the, the, the Russians will move, but um, you see that the events I described were so extraordinary, and the current events happening in Russia also so extraordinary, that they should make a modern war in this day and age, that you really see, you know what they say, Leib Sarm Hashem, and you see the good Lord runs, has some kind of a plan. We don't know what the plan is. We just hope it's not a bad plan. You see, the situation is such that things could go this way, could go that way, and Israel sweating every minute. That's just who our our fate. We just sweat a lot. <laughs> you have to doubt it a lot, um, and so it's a kind of remarkable this this legacy. And uh, as some who's Jewish, you hope that the Russians don't go back to the old way, which they'll be fanatically anti-Semitic. They'll blame everything on the Jews. I repeat, they are the ones who composed and disseminated the Protocols of Zion. It's a Russian document. If you look it up, you'll see. Uh, and it's pretty it, 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 It's pretty uh, scary and dangerous. Anyway, these are just a few thoughts that struck me on this day when I heard about the Gorbachev business uh, and Russia, which is still a major player in the world. And a lot of Jews come from there, including my father. So uh, I think it's a very interesting topic. Once again, I want to uh, thank Abe for um, sponsoring this in memory of his mom, Shama Shanavalia. With that, I bid you a good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.